Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. I am Kieran Mulvaney, and after one week with Barry Tompkins filling in more than admirably, my co-host Eric Raskin returns. Welcome back, Eric. Uh, uh, how was your road trip? Excellent, excellent. Uh, my son Eli and I hit up the Rust Belt, uh, driving all the way across Pennsylvania to spend a couple of nights in Cleveland and one night in Pittsburgh, taking in a baseball game in each city and seeing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, so you were with a Hall of Famer in Barry, and uh, I was with quite a few Hall of Famers, you know, hanging out with John, Paul, George, Ringo, Mick. Keith, Bruce, Axel, Jimmy, Janice. I could go on. Shall I go on? I was hanging out well, with Elvis, Smokey, Elton, Bono, Flea, Billy Joe. You done? Now? Almost, almost. I-, I was hanging out with Sting, Slash, Dolly, Lionel. Um, God, I wonder. Actually, hold on a second. I wonder if Barry's available. Let me just look up his number for a second. Uh, do you mean Barry Gibb? Because I was hanging with him too. Oh my God! Yeah, I just I have so many regrets here. Oh dear, <laughs> I miss Barry so much. <laughs> Yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, at, at least you only have to be with me for like an hour a week. Think of how much this sucks for me. I have to be with me all the time, Karen. <laughs> I thought you were going to say how much this sucked, this sucked for poor Eli. He was on the road trip with you. But... <laughs> That's true. He was trapped in a very small space with me for an extended period of time. Oh, dear. Yes. Oh, well. <laughs> Anyway, still soon I shall be stuck with you for several hours at a time. Yes. Because it is Davis Garcia Fight Week. So um, on this edition of the podcast, yes, we'll get to all the usual stuff, the stuff that you like, uh, the fight game, a new top five challenge, some outside the ring news, and analysis of Zhilai Zhang's shock stoppage of Joe Joyce. And that is not easy to say. Um, (laughs) But but let's not waste any time. Let's get right to it. Uh, The bulk of this episode will be devoted to previewing Saturday's Showtime pay-per-view showdown, the biggest fight of 2023 so far from all angles. Here's what you need to know. Uh, Saturday, live from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, the pay-per-view starts at 8 Eastern, 5 local time. It's Gervonta Tank Davis, 28 years old, 28-0 with 26 KOs, the third highest KO percentage in the sport among champions and title holders, versus King Ryan Garcia, 24 years old, 23-0 with 19 knockouts. They're fighting at a catch weight of 136 pounds with a rehydration clause requiring them to weigh in again Saturday at 146 or below. It's been a couple of years, Kieran, since you labeled Davis, Garcia, Devin Haney, and Teofimo Lopez the four princes, and for the first time, two of those princes are facing each other. Are they the two best fighters among the princes? Maybe. Are they the two biggest stars? Definitely. Tank has averaged more than 15,000 tickets sold for his last seven fights uh, in six different major cities, uh, the last five of them as a pay-per-view headliner. Ryan Garcia has nearly 10 million Instagram followers and has sold over 10,000 tickets for each of his last two fights. They could have put this fight anywhere and filled a stadium, but they put it in Vegas, the unofficial big fight capital of the world. Kieran, let me get your thoughts on the star power here. Is the winner of this fight the face of American boxing. To what extent did you see these guys getting to this point in terms of the sizes of their fan bases? And just say a bit about your excitement level as the guy who coined the name that two of the princes are squaring off. Yeah, look, I'm tremendously excited that this is finally happening, not least because, unfortunately, it's possible that this is the only matchup we get between mm. all of them, at least 135, right? So 
Tiafimo Lopez has moved up in weight. If the others want him, they'll have to follow him up to 140, it seems. Um, Devin Haney might follow, actually. Uh, his promoter, Bob Arum, saying that, you know, after he fights uh, Vasily Lomachenko, he probably will also move at, at 140. Um, you know, Davis has fought at 140 before, and Garcia has the frame to enable him to do so. So maybe this, this if it does continue to happen, uh, happens at 140. But for now, look, yes, we should absolutely treasure this matchup. Not only because it is a terrific matchup, but also, yeah, it may be one, the one of all the various uh, possible combinations that, that actually happens. But, you know, I was really interested by that question you you asked there, you know, will the winner be the face of American boxing? And I read Oscar De La Hoya making a claim like that or some, something mm. like it recently. And, and at first I didn't pay much heed because Oscar says a lot of stuff. But yes. when you think about it, it's actually a very, really valid, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Tank is probably the best ticket seller in the sport, not just among those four, but among all American boxers right now, I would yeah. think, with the possible exception of Deontay, I don't know. Um, you know, and, and outside of the guy that he's facing, and indeed Deontay, I'm not sure there's a great deal of competition right now for that that crown of sort of like the face of American boxing. Um, doesn't necessarily follow that you have to be the best Right. Uh, in order to be the face of American boxing. But the winner of this fight could well make a make a claim. You know, we talk about Crawford and Spence a lot, and for very good reason. But as important as they are to the sport, they just don't draw anything like as well as either of these guys. And then, of course, the other factor is that Garcia has that De La Hoya thing going on. Um, yeah. Oscar wasn't necessarily ever the very best during his career. But there was a period when he had a claim to, to you know, to stake to, and may have been considered pound for pound number one for a while. But even if he wasn't unequivocally the best, he was very good, very, very good. And he was willing to face everyone. And he was extremely approachable and, of course, very good looking. So he not only became the face of boxing in this country, he kind of carried the sport on his back until Pacquiao and Mayweather came along. And Garcia in particular, you feel, has the ability to do the same. I will say this. I think that Tank has more of an opportunity to be the face of boxing among boxing fans, if hmm. you know what I mean. Whereas whereas I think Ryan has more of that ability to be the crossover face of American boxing because he already does have that enormous social media following. He has already crossed over to some extent. He's a good looking lad. And frankly, he doesn't have court cases lined up like planes on a runway, unlike Tank. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure that either of them would, at least in the short term, be the face of the sport in the same way that Floyd Mayweather was or Ray Leonard or Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, because they were they had a stake. They had a they could claim to be the best as, as you know, as well as the most popular. But they might even be a transitional figure until the likes of Shakur or Boots come along. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more at stake here than just bragging rights and a very, very good fight. And you also said, you know, to what extent do I anticipate all of this? I think Garcia was anticipated from the very beginning. I think when Golden Boy knew what they had potentially, not just in a very skillful fighter, but also in just the kind of person that he is and and his, his obvious kind of appeal. Tank caught me by surprise, mm. I'll be honest, in terms of his huge appeal. Great fighter. No question about it. Very skillful. But that he is as popular as he is with boxing fans. And as you said, he doesn't just sell out 
stadiums in Baltimore or Washington, D.C. It's Atlanta. It's L.A. It's, it's Las Vegas. It's everywhere. Not a lot of boxes can do that, actually. And I must confess that I was surprised it kind of snuck up on me how popular uh, Tank Davis has, has become, um, certainly within the sport. And a win here, I think, definitely sets him up within the sport, if not in a crossover sense, as the man who's sort of holding the candle there for, for the sport in this country. Yeah, and, and I'll note that he's no slouch on Instagram either, that uh, yeah, I think Garcia's like 9.4 million at last check, and Tank Davis has like 4.6 million Instagram followers, so so he, he's got a pretty good uh, following going on social media as well. And, and I just have to chime in with one other thing about this fight. There's no title at stake. This, this is a non-title 12-rounder, and that fact has absolutely zero impact on the appeal or marketability of this fight. Absolutely none. At this level, with actual star fighters, belts don't mean a thing. Random alphabet belts, whether, you know, world title belts, interim belts, silver nonsense, all the belts are bullshit. And and, and Ryan Garcia actually said as much in an interview that I heard. I, I hope we get to interview him in Vegas so I can make him say it again. Uh, <laughs> this fight is huge, and there are no belts involved, and Nobody misses them. Nobody cares. Uh, that's it. Just had to quickly get that rant in. Uh, now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do some X's and O's in a bit. But before we get into the physical matchup, there are some mental factors to consider. Uh, Garcia dealt very openly with mental health challenges. He faced depression, anxiety, panic attacks. And he had a 15-month layoff from 2021 to 22. Um, Tank as I kind of indicated earlier, he has the prospect of jail time looming. Um, he will be sentenced May 5th for charges stemming from a 2020 hit and run incident in Baltimore. Um, do either of these situations give you any pause? Are they just side plots or do you consider that kind of thing when assessing what could happen in the ring? Well, I'll talk about the Garcia situation first because I really don't see it impacting anything. Um, like I said, I watched and and listened to some interviews with Ryan. He's been doing press during training camp. He's, of course, done lots of sit-downs during All Access. And he seems, to my amateur ear and eye, to be in a great headspace. Um, he had a bad struggle, got through it. I'm sure it's something he will have to continue to confront at times for the rest of his life. It doesn't just go away. But it appears at this moment to be a total non-issue. The more intriguing and potentially impactful one here is Tank and that looming sentencing. The expectation is that he will be going away for a bit. Not sure how long, presumably a length of time that will count in months, so neither weeks nor years, most likely. Um, I can't imagine that isn't parking itself at least a little bit in the back of his mind. The question is whether it serves as a distraction at all, or whether he can compartmentalize, and it's like this fight is everything to him and the sentencing, the jail time. Well, after April 22nd, we'll worry about that. I get the sense that probably the latter is the case with him. T Tank has gotten very good at being focused in the ring. He's long since stopped missing weight. He's disciplined in his professional life. If anything, this, this may even be a positive, uh, you know, galvanize him, get him thinking, well, this is it. I'm probably not going to fight again this year. 
so I got to give everyone a great win to remember me by while I'm gone. And, and then I get a little vacation from boxing. Uh, that that could be his mindset going in here. The obvious modern example to compare this with is Floyd against Cotto. Uh, he got in one last big paycheck before serving time, and he fought well. Uh, it, it was among Floyd's tougher fights, but he didn't underperform at all. Cotto was just one of his better opponents. Everyone is unique. Everyone is different. But I would suspect Davis does more or less like Floyd did, that he's focused on the task at hand and fights his fight and then moves on to his next challenge after the fight is over. All right, let's get to those uh, X's and O's that you mentioned. Uh, These are two fighters we know very well. This will be Davis's 14th fight on Showtime or Showtime pay-per-view. And while it will in fact be Ryan Garcia's Showtime debut, It's not like he's new to us. We followed his career closely almost from the very start. Uh, Davis is a Southpaw. Garcia has had good results against Southpaws. KO7 versus Luke Campbell. KO6 versus Javier Fortuna. Davis took a tune-up fight. Garcia didn't. Davis has been with the same coach, Calvin Ford, forever. Garcia is entering his third fight with Hall of Famer Joe Goosen in his corner. Kieran, tell me what stands out to you stylistically here. Where do you see a potential edge for either guy? And then uh, wrap up by making your pick. I think one of the many things that makes this such an appealing matchup is that there is a clash of styles here. Um, Garcia's edge is his length and his hand speed. The fact that he could stand at half range and fire off combinations and theoretically you can move away without Davis responding. He, He does also have a terrific left hook. Although the obvious weapon for him to deploy here against a much shorter tank is is an uppercut. Mm. Um, Davis arguably has the stronger chin, um, certainly the bigger one-punch power. And I would also say, by some distance, based on what we've seen, the better boxing brain, the overall higher level of boxing ability. Uh, We focus on tank's power, and understandably so, but it's it's his intelligence in the ring that I think is one of his biggest strengths. He, He can start slowly quite often largely because he's content to see what his opponent has before turning it up a gear, like like Mayweather did, like Crawford often does. Um, once he has the timing down, then he kind of gets into gear. And I think that that's what make, will make the difference here. If Garcia has to win, he has to jump out to an early lead, which he may very well do, and hold on to it and weather the storm, because Davis will surely start coming back into it down the back of the fight. That said. Um, the big difference is that I think the big problem with Garcia, he doesn't do some of the subtle things all that well, and certainly not as well as Tank. He squares up just a bit when he's throwing his combinations. His feet, I think, don't move quite quickly enough. Um, and I think those kind of little things will prove to be the difference here. I, I think he will start fast, Garcia. I think he'll bank some early rounds. I wouldn't even be surprised if he scores a, a, a flash knockdown of Tank mm. early. Um, But I do think that as the fight evolves, Davis will start employing some subtle feints to move Garcia into position. He'll he'll start slowing him down a bit. He'll start getting almost imperceptibly closer, even as I wouldn't be surprised if he's continuing to lose some rounds. I wouldn't be surprised if he's uh, a few points down as we enter the ninth round. But then I wouldn't be surprised if what happens is Davis just lands a big power shot that appears to come out of the blue. But actually, he's been very subtly starting to set up over the previous Mm -hmm. couple of rounds. But it appears to just suddenly come out of nowhere, maybe as Garcia's in the middle of a combination. I think he ends up knocking Ryan Garcia out in the ninth round. 
Okay. Um, so uh, one question I found myself asking heading into this fight is, who has the more dangerous left hand? Um, I'm, I'm not sure the answer. Everyone agrees the left hook is Garcia's best punch, almost to the point that people think of him as a one-handed fighter, which is an exaggeration, but you do hear that sometimes. Davis can hurt you with either hand, um, but in the last couple of years, he has been icing guys with the left in various forms. Uh, Raleigh Romero, Leo Santa Cruz, Yuri Urkis Gamboa, all done in with the left hand. That said, while the power punches, the knockout potential... That steals the headlines here. Boxing nerd alert. Uh, I think the focus for this matchup should be on the feet as much as the fists. Um, Tank has excellent footwork. I've been studying more video of him leading up to this. Excellent lateral movement that helps set up his punches and get his opponent off balance, whereas Garcia has almost no lateral movement. It's all forward and backward. Um, He does use that up and back movement well to control range, and that'll be key here since he is the much taller, longer boxer. Um, as always with a lefty versus a righty, you want to watch those lead feet. Can Garcia land that straight right lead without stepping too far to his right, leaving himself open to Davis's power shots? I could especially see himself uh, being opened up to Tank's counter right hook. Um, I I noticed Garcia keeps his right hand up better these days. Ever since Luke Campbell dropped him with a southpaw left, he's he's keeping the right right up better, but he doesn't keep his left hand up well. Uh, That's one of the challenges Joe Goosen has here. I I mean, it seems like camp by camp he's been tightening things up with Garcia. I think he's tightened up some of his footwork mistakes, but I, I sure hope for Ryan's sake that he's done something about the way he leaves his chin up in the air. Basically, they're a lot of potential ways Garcia will leave openings for Tank, and Tank knows how to take advantage. You've said it several times, and you said it already here on this podcast. Because Tank is such a gifted puncher with a high KO rate, people sleep on his ring IQ. Um, mm-hmm. So, look, I, I favored Tank in this fight from the start, and I still do. But Garcia is undoubtedly dangerous. Um, his left hook lands almost as fast as his left jab. I think he probably has the slightly faster hands of the two fighters. He has a tremendous left hook to the body. That actually may be his best chance at winning this fight with one punch. And uh, while while Garcia has pretty much no inside game that we know of, he can land that left to the liver from the outside, from a little bit of distance. Um, So he he may not have to deal with much infighting to win this fight. Uh, And of course, there's Tank's big shortcoming, which you talked about, starting slow. playing defense on the ropes, covering up, not punching enough, falling behind. Tank is very comfortable losing early rounds. One of these days that could catch up to him. I don't think that day is going to be Saturday. Uh, But I do, like you, expect Garcia to have some early success, win rounds while Davis is kind of wary early on. But I just don't see Garcia avoiding Tank's power forever. I think it'll be that counter right hook that does the main damage. And I think once Tank gets Garcia hurt, he'll finish him. Would I be surprised if Garcia lands a big left hand and and wins this fight by knockout? Absolutely not. But my pick, like yours, is Tank by knockout. And I will say it happens a little sooner than your prediction. I'll go round seven. Intriguing fight, edgier seat all the way. But Garcia has too many holes and Tank has too much skill and too many weapons. 
All right. There is a three-fight uh, pay-per-view undercard building toward that main event. So let's talk about each of these fights and make our picks. Uh, in the co-feature, we will get a look at one of the best super middleweights in the world. Minneapolis-based Cuban Southpaw David Morrell, 8-0 with seven KOs. Trained by friends of the podcast, Ronnie Shields and Bob Santos, he takes on a late replacement opponent, Brazilian former Olympian Yamaguchi the Problem Falcao who fought five times in 2022 and is on an eight-fight winning streak to uh, run his record to 24-1-1 with 10 KOs. Uh, look, Morel, from the moment he came onto our radar, has been calling out David Benavides. Uh, Eric, to what extent is this opportunity in a co-feature on a massive pay-per-view an audition for that? In other words, is this one of those opportunities where, for Morel, winning isn't enough? He needs to look impressive. And how do you see this fight going? Is he going to look impressive? Is he going to win? What is your pick? Uh I guess I would say that needs to look impressive is, is a little bit of a strong wording. But, you know, if he wants to create demand for that Battle of the Davids, then, uh, yeah, he, he's got to take care of business in style against Falco. And making that slightly challenging is that Falco is also a southpaw. And until a few days ago, Morel was training for an orthodox fighter in Senag Beko. Uh, you mentioned Falco's record, 24-1-1. There's that one loss on there. It was against Chris Pearson who is also a lefty uh, and not nearly as good of one as Morel. Uh, although, uh, you know, Morel, he, he fights Southpaw, but he's naturally right-handed for whatever that's worth. Um, Morel has not had many pro fights, but we've seen enough of him to know his offense is really something. He's smooth, he's powerful, he's explosive, but he's had it all his way so far. Uh, so I have no clue how his obvious talents will translate against a David Benavidez. Uh, but for Saturday night, we don't need to know that. We just need to know how they'll translate against Yamaguchi Falco. And I would expect the answer is quite well. Uh, Falco is a good solid fighter, but there's nothing special about him. That eight fight winning streak. There isn't a notable name among the opponents. He's a B level guy who can have his way with the C level guys. And Morel is an A level guy who we know can dominate the B-level guys. Um, stepping back just a bit on, on, on the Benavidez question, we know that Benavidez wants Canelo. If there's any chance he's going to get Canelo this year, I can't imagine him entertaining a Morel fight in the meantime. But, you know, if if Canelo beats John Ryder and then announces he's going for the Bivol rematch uh, or whatever he announces, if it's not a fight with Benavidez, then I do think benavidez Morel is in play and Morel need to dominate Falco to create more demand for it. And I think he will. Uh, Falco has never been stopped. He's only been knocked down once. It will mean something if Morel gets the KO. And I believe he will. He's just too athletic and explosive. He'll overwhelm Falco. And I predict he'll force a stoppage in round six. What do you say? Uh, yeah, look, I think the fact that Morel was initially supposed to face Senna Agbeko, and then when Agbeko wasn't licensed by the Nevada Commission, by refusal with which he's taking serious issue, by the way, um, Morel's team, and the fact that they then turned to Yamaguchi Falcao, I think it makes it clear what the intention is here. This is very much not Sebastian Fandora against Brian Mendoza. This is not a young contender in line for a world title shot taking a risk against a dangerous opponent. This is a showcase bout. Um, this is Morel aiming to take advantage of the buzz surrounding Benavidez's recent outing to stake a claim for himself in front of a pay-per-view audience to make that case that, as you mentioned, if Benavidez does not get a Canelo shot immediately, then he and Benavidez should match up 
and that if and when they do, he has a good shot of pulling of getting the win. And that's okay, by the way. Not every fight has to be a risky one. This is a business, and sometimes you absolutely want to showcase your guy. You want to set him up for the next big fight. It makes perfect sense for that to be happening uh, with Morel right now. Both Agbeko and Falcao more than good enough to give Morel some rounds, but neither would be expected to come even close to, to even winning. And yeah, look, you, the Morel's backers can say if he wins, hey, look, David beat this Olympic medalist, while glossing over the fact that the Olympic medal came in 2012 and in the 11 years since, he hasn't faced even slightly decent opposition. Um, and yeah, I agree with you. The fact that Falcao has been down only once in his career and that he came back to win when he was knocked down means that if Morel does get him out of there inside the distance, it would likely be considered a good performance. And I agree with you, he will. Um, there's just nothing to indicate that Falcao can do very much to bother Morel or, or keep him off him. Uh, I see Morel coming forward relentlessly. And I think while Falcao may be able to keep some early rounds close-ish, it will devolve into one-way traffic. Um, Falcao will end up holding and hoping to survive, but that will only get him so far. And in keeping with the early theme, I do think he'll last a little a bit longer than you do okay. i have him i have him ready to go in round seven he'll suffer a knockdown or two his corner the referee will step in to stop the beating in the seventh round okay so we're close to being on the same page but not exactly the same picks uh, yet we still have a couple more fights to go though here uh, in the same weight class super middleweight we have a rematch to a stunning upset from two years ago Veteran Philly fighter Gabe Rosado, who is 26, 16, and 1 with 15 knockouts, takes on Bektamir Bekbuli Melikuziev, 11 and 1, 9 KOs, seeking revenge for his one-punch KO loss to Rosado in the third round in June 2021. You and I have both spoken openly about our desire to see Rosado retire from boxing. He's taken a lot of punches and spilled a lot of blood over the years. But if he's going to fight on, this is a fight with an obvious plot line, and at least it's not at 175 pounds against Zerto Ramirez, the fight Rosado intended to take last month before Zerto missed weight by 12 pounds. So I can talk myself into this one to an extent. Can you, Karen? How are you feeling about this? Does it at least make sense from Beck's perspective, trying to avenge his lone loss? And what is your pick for this scheduled 10-rounder? Uh, so first of all, yeah, I think it makes total sense from Beck's perspective to take this fight. Um he made a mistake in their first outing. He was winning comfortably and was so confident the victory and over stoppage that he stopped paying attention to his defense. He had Rosado against the ropes. He had him hurt. He knocked him down earlier and he dropped his guard figuratively and literally and Rosado punished him. I have to think there's little likelihood of lightning striking twice here. And so, so why shouldn't Beck take this fight? It's a good opportunity to, to, you know, deal with this and, and, and sort of avenge this loss and, and move on. As for Rosado, yeah, I'd be extremely happy if Gabe wasn't fighting at all anymore. But I was talking to Freddie Roach actually the other day, who has okay. been training Rosado since 29, although Marvin Samodio will be in Gabe's corner on Saturday because Freddie will be in Cardiff. And I asked him, like, how long is Gabe going to keep going? And he said the two of them have been talking about that and that Rosado started to do a bit of broadcasting and that he likes doing broadcasting and he'd like to switch to that. Freddie said one or two more fights and then it's done. So okay. if that's the case, while acknowledging that just one fight and, in fact, just one punch can be enough to cause tremendous damage, if he does want to take, say, two more fights before retirement, then one of them might as well be this one. A rematch against the guy he has already knocked out pretty much cold. If he beats him again, phenomenal. What a, what a finish to your career. If not, 
maybe take one more fight at home against the journeyman and ride off into the sunset. But he won't win this one. Um, I do think, though, that he'll last the distance. Rosado has been losing fights, but he's been hanging in there. And that's part of the reason, of course, you and I both want him to retire because he doesn't get knocked out. He does hang in there and he does take a lot of punches and he is tough. Um, And I got to figure Melakuziev will be just a wee bit more cautious um this time around and and less willing to just go for broke he'll he'll want to get the win um and i think he'll focus on that so i'm gonna go for a very very wide perhaps shut out unanimous decision win for melakusiev okay um i should say one thing about rosado for all the losses on his record and for all our concern about him i heard him interviewed recently and he sounds great um, that, that doesn't mean he won't pay a price later. You know, we, we just don't know. But I, I just want to note it that th- this isn't a guy with whom you can already hear the effects. He isn't slurring his words. This isn't like a Terry Norris or Riddick Bowe type thing where we're calling for him to retire because we can already hear the damage. We just know that he has taken a lot of punches for a lot of years. And so we would like him to step away sooner rather than later. Just want to be clear about that. As for this mm-hmm. fight, my gut tells me that basically, like you said, uh, Rosado caught lightning once against this guy, and it just isn't likely to happen a second time. This is the fight that Beck needs, perhaps, to to move forward. It, it makes much more sense for him to want this than for Rosado to want it. And like you, I, I think he's going to avenge the loss. I could see him being more cautious this time, more respectful of Rosado's power. My first instinct was to say that he fights smart, and just kind of outworks and outpoints Rosado would have been the same pick as you. But the more I thought about it, the more I see Beck, you know, he's not a boxer. He's a come forward guy. His instinct is to be aggressive. So I actually do see him stopping Rosado, maybe on cuts, maybe just a corner stoppage from an accumulation of punishment. I'm going to go Melikuziev TKO eight. Fair enough. Um, On March 4th, we were quite impressed with 19-year-old Elijah Garcia when he stopped Amakar Vidal on Showtime Championship Boxing in the fourth round. And we don't have to wait long to see him again. Just 49 days later, he opens this pay-per-view card against Kevin Salgado of Mexico in a middleweight 10-rounder. Uh, the Southpaw Garcia is 14-0 with 12 KOs. Salgado is 15-1-1 with 10 KOs. Eric, does this look to you like a showcase for young Garcia, or is this a serious challenge for him? And how do you see these two guys matching up and what's your pick If we aren't getting carried away with how good Garcia can be off that one explosive finish against Vidal, and and, and make no mistake, we may be getting carried away. Wouldn't be the first time. Um, But if he's the real deal, then I don't believe Salgado should be a serious threat to beat him. If he's not the real deal, you know, Salgado's solid. He's a standard progression fight uh, around the same level as the last guy Garcia beat. The right kind of opponent for a 19-year-old who shouldn't be in any rush, who, who should be taking on gatekeepers, not contenders right now. And that's what Salgado is, more, more gatekeeper than contender. We saw him on Showtime a year ago on the Fundora Lubin show. He got a draw against Bryant Perella, and I thought was a bit lucky to get the draw. Um, that was righty Salgado against Southpaw Perella, and it was an ugly matchup, not a fun fight to watch. And here we have righty Salgado against Southpaw Garcia. I hope this provides better action. Usually Salgado is in better fights than that. Usually he applies pressure. He throws these wide power shots. He's looking for a knockout and he's not hard to find. But 
here's an indication of the level Salgado is on. After the draw against Perella, he lost by shutout to Joey Spencer. So if Garcia is anywhere near the same level of prospect as Jesus Ramos, then to answer your question, this should be a showcase kind of fight. Uh, Garcia is also the bigger guy. He's a true middleweight against a fighter who often makes 154. I'm excited to see Garcia again. He, he seems to have a high ceiling. He's extraordinarily mature for 19. Uh, he will be turning 20 four days after this fight, but for now he's still 19. I'm just not too optimistic he gets a real test here. Garcia has to be the pick. Will he be the first to stop Salgado? Tough call. I'm going to go with yes, making it four KO picks for me on this card. I'll say Garcia stops Salgado in round six. I underestimated Garcia massively last time out. Um, I will not do that again. Okay. Um, but, you know, to sort of follow up from your point, I also don't want to overcorrect, overcorrect and, and then just act as if suddenly Garcia is the second coming and Salgado is just here to be blown out. I, I think Salgado is a perfectly decent opponent for, for Garcia. Um, I, although I did make the same note as you here, that the fact that he lost every round against Joey Spencer, who we just saw get brutalized by Jesus Ramos, does give us a sense of exactly where Salgado stands on the on the grand scheme of things. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine for Garcia to be facing right now. In fact, it's a pretty good fight for Garcia to have right now. Um, Salgado is, as you mentioned, he's, he has been durable. But here's the thing. He is also aggressive. He likes to come forward and throw wide power punches. That means he's got a pretty decent likelihood of running into something. I think this might actually be fun for as long okay. as it lasts. But I don't know that it lasts terribly long. I think Salgado will come forward to try to knock out Garcia. Garcia will move forward trying to knock out Salgado. Garcia will be the one who succeeds. This time, I'm going to say it round, lasts around less than you picked. Okay. I'm going to pick Garcia KO5. All right. The, the pattern of 2023 continues. We keep picking the same <laughs> winners, not the exact same results. Yeah. Um, uh, a quick note also that prior to the start of the pay-per-view, Showtime will stream two undercard bouts on a countdown show on the Showtime YouTube and Facebook pages. A pair of scheduled 10-rounders. Uh, middleweight, Theodore Cherkashin, 21-0, 13 KOs, faces veteran Elias Espadas, 22-5 with 15 knockouts. And junior middleweight prospect Vito Milnecki Jr., 14-1 and one with nine stoppages, goes up against Jose Charles, who has 20 wins, three losses, one draw, with 12 knockout wins. That begins at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific, kicking off some six straight hours of fight action. Isn't it great we'll be on the left coast for this? Yes. Be in Pacific time. Mm-hmm. How nice. Be in bed <laughs> by midnight. Fantastic. Um, all right. It is time now for the fight game. Um, And when we began this segment, we felt that we were giving each other, especially opening clues that were far too vague. Right. And now I think swung a bit too far in the other direction. Uh, You were correct on the first guess twice in a row. I got it on the second guess last time, helped considerably by some of the details in your first question. So I'm going to go back to making it just a smidge harder and a bit more vague early on this time. If you get this one after <laughs> one question, then I doff my hat to you, sir, in okay. perpetuity. All but right. anyway, <clears throat> all right, here we go. We're going back to a fairly old school opening clue, if you're ready. I am ready. We are recording this podcast on April 16th. This fight took place on April 16th in Chicago for a world title. 
Hmm. So this is one of those ones that uh, if you were putting Jim Lampley to the test here because he knows oh, the dates oh, everything yes. occurred, <laughs> this, oh, might yes. be, this might be an easy guess in one for Lamps, but not for me. So April 16th doesn't help me one bit. Uh, Chicago, world title. I can't remember if this fight may have been Chicago. It's kind of a stab in the dark, but I want to say that when Jake LaMotta beat Marcel Serdan for the title, that may have been Chicago. So that's what I'm going to throw out there. No idea if it happened on April 16th or even if it was in Chicago, but uh, LaMotta uh, stopping Marcel Serdan. That's an awfully good guess. Thank God it's the wrong one. <laughs> okay. But it, is, but it is an awfully good guess. Okay. Yes. I, do I don't you... know if that was Chicago, but, yeah, you're, but you're, you're in, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to oh, say anyway. Okay, that's, all right. That's you have already right, you have already sort of hinted that I'm in, in <laughs> exactly. the ballpark somewhat. Okay, all right. That wasn't in 2016. You are correct. I will tell you that much. Okay. Um, the fight ended in the third round after both men had hit the canvas in that round. Hmm. Okay, so a world title fight in Chicago that only went three rounds and both got dropped in the third. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is a, a decent amount of specificity and detail if I knew this fight. if uh, So I'm trying to think of a famous enough KO3. Oh, I may have it. Was it the third fight between Zale and Graziano? You're getting closer. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I, if, if I'm remembering correctly and don't, uh, don't, Tell if if it turns out it's one of the other Zell Graziano fights and I'm just mixed up, then I guess uh, don't don't spoil it. But I in my mind it was a KO six, another KO six, and then a KO three in the third one. But maybe I just have them mixed up, and I'm about to find out from the next clue it was one of the other Zell Graziano fights. Uh, but um, uh, I guess I should say no more and let you give the third clue. I will say that your memory of the progression of the Zale Graziano fights is correct. Okay, all right. So it, but, is the, so it is not one of the Zale Graziano fights, then. I know that much. But it is not. It is not. Ooh, and now, and now I think I know what it is. Okay. But, <laughs> but I'll let you read the third clue anyway. <laughs> okay. The loser lost his next bout and retired for good. The winner also lost his next bout and retired, but would return to the ring a few years later. Okay, yes, that confirms I was thinking correctly here. Uh, Rocky Graziano is correct, but it's not Tony Zale, it's Sugar Ray Robinson. You are correct, sir. All right. You are correct. Not bad at all. Um, that, that's impressive, actually. The, the, yeah, you were, you were definitely... It was one of those fights where I thought, God, this could be... Again, it's one of those fights where if the guesser just happens to be in the right mind space of the guessy then right. the clues all make super sense otherwise right. they don't you are correct uh, april 16th 1952 sugar a robinson ko3 rocky graziano in chicago stadium uh you would definitely have gotten it with the fourth and fifth clues yeah let me hear number up. four neither man fought under his birth name okay and number five the loser isn't quite as famous as Marciano or Balboa, but the winner is the sweetest there ever was. <laughs> yes, that uh, the old fifth clue that leaves nothing to chance. Uh, but <laughs> so I guess I hadn't, I didn't specifically think about this fact, but subconsciously, by it being in Chicago, I think on some some, some subconscious level, 
I was thinking it probably would not be in the last 50 years or so. Big, yeah. big fights don't happen in Chicago uh, any, anymore. Yeah. The, it's Everything is Vegas or, or New York with a, a handful of exceptions. So, um, so I think, uh, again, I, I didn't uh, have the intentional thought, oh, this must be a fight from the 50s. But I think on the subconscious level that my mind went straight to LaMotta, Serdan, because that was the era when big fights would take place in Chicago, at a, whether Chicago Stadium or some other major venue there. And I spent a little bit of time on that on that first clue because my first one uh, cut was to just say this fight was on April 16th. And I'm like, come on, Kieran, that's ridiculous. That's uh, <laughs> unless you're like going through the this this week in boxing history website and then have things memorized. Then then I thought, well, that's just incredibly unhelpful. And then clues two and three don't really help. But I thought, you know, got to give him a we've got to strike yeah. that balance in that I, first clue. I think you struck it. Away too. You struck it perfectly. The April 16th wasn't really helpful in any way, but it's but it's a nice hook. And then but yeah, the the Chicago was just enough that you can sort of deduce a little something from it. And I thought, you know, obviously world titles. Yeah, no, I think that was we have found the sweet spot for the that, amount that was, of information in clue one. In a way, for both giving the clues and guessing the clues, that was like the perfect fight game right there. That's how it should have happened. Yes. Uh, well done uh, by you on the clues and by me on the guessing, I guess. It's all around. Yes. Exactly. Uh, all right. Let's talk about uh, this past weekend's fights. And there wasn't a lot of note on the schedule, uh, but we have one massive upset. We have to discuss massive in every possible way, as in a battle of six foot six inch super heavyweights. Zhile Zhang of China dominated Joe Joyce, who was as much as a minus 1,200 favorite at some sports books. The southpaw Zhang landed the straight left hand early and often. Joyce's right eye started swelling in the very first round, and by the sixth, it was pretty well slammed shut. And referee Howard Foster, with some input from the ringside doctor, stopped the fight at 123 of the sixth round. Joyce was in line for a title shot, but not anymore. He suffers his first defeat. And suddenly we have to take Zhang seriously as a contender. Uh, the co-feature on this card went according to script. Michaela Mayer outpointing late sub Lucy Wildheart in a near shutout. But this main event veered quite a bit from what most of us thought the script would be. Kieran, how shocked were you to see Zhang beating up Joyce? And uh, any other thoughts on how he pulled off the upset or, or where these heavyweights go from here? I was tremendously shocked. Uh, I thought as the fight unfolded, I just assumed Zhang was was showing that he was going to have a good first couple of rounds and then Joyce would sort of reel him in, you know, and maybe, just maybe, her Joyce's eye not closed, he might have done. But, you know, I was thinking about afterwards and it, I feel like it, it shows how much we can get wrapped up in narratives. And then when the narrative shifts, we get wrapped up in that shifted narrative. Like before he fought Daniel Dubois, I thought Joe Joyce was just simply too slow and that Dubois would be able to do to him in a sense what Zhang did to him on, on Saturday. But then Joyce soaked up the early pressure on that fight, took the life out of Dubois, ironically, in large part, by closing his eye. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what he's been doing since. And, and when he knocked out Joseph Parker, who's a tough, tough guy, um, that convinced me that, that Joyce was for real. Uh, I would have made him a huge underdog up against Fury, but a favorite over Joshua and you know, maybe even even against Wilder and Usyk. And then I just, when I've seen Zhang, I just haven't been impressed. Um, not least because, as the commentary team remarked, often uh, Zhang has shown poor conditioning and a tendency to fade badly in the second half of the fight. And 
So it felt you've got a guy who comes on strongly in the second half of the fight. You've got a guy who fades in the second half of the fight. Script writes itself, right? But what if you never get to the second half of the fight? <laughs> um, and, you know, what if Joyce's strengths, that straightforward pressure style, um, that sort of just coming forward with no real lateral movement, the willingness to absorb punishment, what if that could be turned against him? It makes perfect sense. But I never thought that Zhang would be the person to do that. Um, but that's what he did. His timing and accuracy were exemplary. I think he landed 58% of his punches, uh, even though he threw and landed less than Joyce. And they didn't just swell his eye. They bloodied his nose. And they definitely appeared to buckle him on more than one occasion. Um, I have to say, I have to give credit to Tim Bradley for his prescience and commentary. You know, he said beforehand, you just can't keep relying on that Homer Simpson strategy of absorbing mm. punches until your opponent is done that a jaw can be unbreakable until it isn't. And, and it made me think of Antonio Margarito, who seemed absolutely made of granite until Shane Mosley broke him, and he was never remotely the same again. And I don't know if the same fate awaits Joyce, Joyce now. And, and I, I must admit, our collective tendency to flip-flop in assessments was well pierced by our friend Matt Christie, who tweeted out a, a BBC story with a headline that quoted an ex-boxer saying, no way in hell Joyce beats Joshua. And and Matt Christie tweeted that with the comment, no way in hell Joshua beat Joyce two weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> and But it does feel as if it could be a, a wee bit of a turning point in Joyce's career because it might eliminate an element of the fear factor there and it might suggest a way forward against him. And also because it feels a little bit like a reversion to the mean that maybe Joyce overachieved in his last few fights and maybe we were underestimating him a bit before the Dubois fight. Right. But you st- that said, you have to figure it still will take a particular type of heavyweight to feel confident against Joyce. It's got to be someone with fast hands because that was key to what Zhang did. Um, accurate punches, good chin, strong engine and a big guy. Andy Ruiz comes to mind as a guy who might now suddenly think, oh, I might have a shot against this guy. Um, and even before it became apparent that Joyce was going to lose, I was watching those first couple rounds and picturing Deontay Wilder licking his lips. Um, but, you know, I'd still make Joshua a pick and fight with Joyce because AJ seems hesitant still to truly commit to his punches and seems to have not much confidence in his ability to absorb them. So um, so Joyce is kind of still in the mix there at near the top of the division, but he's 37 right. and now he's going to have to go and wait in line. Has he blown his shot here? I mean, he might have done. Um, Simply when you look at all the different factors in mind now. um, As for Zhang, I just didn't expect him to have that in him. I just didn't. Um, And I'm still not, and I hate to say this on the back of such a good win, I'm still not super convinced by him. I mean, he still has to prove that he can dig deep against a genuinely world-class opponent and and endure rough patches and come through on the other side. And I'm just, I'm not convinced he can do that. But that said, in this fight, he didn't have to because he got his tactics right. He got his strategy right. He showed good hand speed, straight punches, accurate punches. He knew what he wanted to do. And he got his guy out of there. And for now, he's another name in the mix at that sharp end of the division. Yeah, so because I was away last week, uh, I, I didn't comment on Brian Mendoza's upset win over Sebastian mm-hmm. Fundora, but I think this and that have to be the two leading contenders for upset yeah. of the year so far, right? Uh, unless unless I'm forgetting something. 
And I would put this one, uh, Jean Ko 6 Joyce, ahead of Mendoza Fundora from a shock perspective. I, I just did not see this coming at all. I thought Zhang was totally ordinary from watching him in previous fights. Big and strong and not without skill, but just too slow, too easy to hit. Turns out he wasn't as slow as I thought. It, it was Joyce who was too slow and yeah. too easy to hit. Uh, I think Joe Joyce has to become my new go-to example for fighters. I was a little skeptical about, didn't really believe in. And then finally, when I finally caved and started to believe, <laughs> they immediately lost. I hate when that happens. If, if I had held out just a little longer saying, you know, eh, Joyce, he's too slow. You all are overrating him. I could have looked like a genius, not to mention, <laughs> not to mention I could have maybe made some good money betting on Zhang. But no, uh, I said after he beat Dubois that, OK, there's something there. And then he beat up Joe Parker and I fully jumped aboard the Joyce train like everyone else. And here we are. Uh, but uh, but man, full credit to Zhang. He could not miss with the southpaw left. Yeah. It was so straight and accurate. And every bit of that swelling on Joyce's face was earned. Uh, and. In terms of where these guys fit in at heavyweight, um, you know, we're going to talk about the top guys in a few minutes when we get to the news. But Joyce was going to be on the outside looking in for a little bit longer, even if he won this fight. So now it's Zhang who's on the outside looking in. I don't imagine he'll get a fight with one of the superstars. So from my perspective, what I'm interested for him, how about a Philip Hergovich rematch? Um, It was a good, very close, somewhat controversial fight the first time. May as well do it again. And, uh, you know, the winner could be like a top five or six contender at heavyweight. Yeah. All right. From post-fight talk back to pre-fight talk, um, aside from Davis Garcia and its many undercard fights, there isn't a ton to look forward to next weekend. By far, the next biggest fight is Saturday in Cardiff, Wales, hopefully ending right around when the Vegas undercard stream is starting. Two undefeated fighters squaring off for a 130-pound belt. Hometown kid Joe Cordina against Tajikistan's Shavkatson Rakimov with DAZN carrying that fight. Any quick thoughts on that one, Kieran? Or if you'd prefer, you can do a deep dive on former NFL running back Le'Veon Bell facing someone named JMX on Friday night from New Orleans, also on DAZN. Well, JMX is, of course, a YouTuber. Um, he's a popular online player at FIFA, as well as an associate of the Sidemen, the uh, comedy quote-unquote troupe from which KSI um, and He comes to this fight with a record of... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was wondering how long you were going to keep that going. That's as far as I got. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, look, uh, Cordina and Rakimov were slated to fight last year in Abu Dhabi, um, with Cordina making a mandatory defense of an alphabet title, but the Welshman needed surgery for hand injury. The alphabet body promptly stripped him, which seems a tad unfair. Rakimov won the vacant belt, and now is heading to Cordina's turf to defend it. Uh, Cordina won this belt with a terrific one-punch knockout of Kenichi Ogawa in June of last year. A legitimately very impressive win. Rakimov had previously drawn with Jojo Diaz. Um, Rakimov is now trained by Freddie Roach, who mm-hmm. really likes him. Um, as has happened in the past, Rakimov simply walked in wildcard looking for some work. Roach took a shine to him, and uh, and there we go. Um, I think this should be a cracking contest, actually. Uh, Freddie likes his guy's heavy hands, but as anyone who saw Cordina's win over Ogawa can attest, the Welshman doesn't have a ton of knockouts on his record, but he could clearly crack. Um, I think this should be a very, very entertaining contest. And yes, I echo your thought there. I do hope we get to see this before our card kicks off. Right. All right. You already kind of flagged this a little bit, but uh, let's turn to the news. And for our main event this week, we do have the latest little twist atop the heavyweight division. Um, as we discussed on the pod a couple of weeks ago, 
Anthony Joshua said after his points went over Jermaine Franklin that he wanted to make a quick return to the ring this summer. But this week he wrote on Instagram, quote, my next fight is scheduled for December. Not ideal, but everything is part of a bigger picture. Uh, the immediate speculation from some corners of the Internet was that the December fight will be against Tyson Fury and that Fury specifically asked AJ not to fight this summer. So nothing could screw up their big money showdown. Um, there are also some rumblings. Um, that everything is in fact lined up for a mega, mega money Saudi card with Fury Usyk in the main and Joshua Wilder in the co-main. Remember, Fury's US promoter Bob Arum has said that it was the prospect of absurd amounts of Saudi money being available later in the year when this new stadium is built there that was a primary factor in the collapse of Fury Usyk talks last month. Um, Eric, do you think any of that is what's happening here? And how would you feel about Joshua not fighting for eight months and then going straight to a major fight, whether it be against Fury or Wilder, which is, you know, obviously the only other fight remotely big enough to justify waiting for. So I'm torn, as I am on all things Anthony Joshua, pretty much. Uh, I kind of want to see him busy in the ring, learning under Derek James, facing a couple more non-threatening guys to see if maybe he can get his confidence back and go to some higher level. But I kind of know deep down that he is what he is, and probably he's about as good as he's going to get, and so he may as well be making the biggest money possible instead of risking losing to some second-tier heavyweight. If he's going to face a Fury or a Wilder, surely he doesn't give himself his best chance of winning by coming in off an eight-month layoff, his last fight being that mediocre showing versus Franklin. So... I don't know, long-term for AJ to maximize his career, to get himself clearly on the correct side of that Hall of Fame debate that we were recently discussing, I think this is the wrong move. But good Lord, as a fan, uh, other than the nauseating Saudi blood money aspect of it all, the second possibility that you brought up, the idea of Fury Usyk and Joshua Wilder on the same card pretty much the biggest heavyweight doubleheader in boxing history. <laughs> How am I not going to be psyched about that? I, I'm a little skeptical, maybe more than a little skeptical that they can pull that off. Um, but I guess I would rather see AJ Wilder than AJ Fury. Um, I think he has a chance against Wilder, maybe even a good chance. I don't really think he has a chance against Fury. Um, <laughs> and of course, Fury Usyk is the fight that I want to see anyway. So, so that's really a dream doubleheader. Sadly, it requires Saudi money to happen. So we'll see. I, I get why AJ would sit idle for a while and cash that check, even if it's not the best thing for his development. Yeah. Uh, a wide array of items on our news undercard. No longer undefeated Jake Paul has his next fight lined up against UFC veteran Nate Diaz on August 5th in Dallas on DAZN pay-per-view with a weight limit of 185. It'll be interesting to see whether one loss damages Paul's pay-per-view selling power. Edgar Berlanga has an opponent for his June 24th DAZN headlining bout in the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden. He'll face Jason Quigley in a Puerto Rico versus Ireland showdown in New York. A few other fights added. The pre-pay-per-view ESPN portion of the Devin Haney Vasily Lomachenko show will include Andrew Maloney versus Junto Nakatani, plus an appearance from Nico Ali Walsh. Uh, mega prospect Xander Zayas meets Ronald Cruz in the co-feature to Josh Taylor versus Teofimo Lopez. And Dan Rayfield reports that a rematch to the Joshua Franco-Kazuto Ioka draw is set for June 24th. Uh, some news on Franco's younger brother, Bam Rodriguez. 
He had surgery to repair his broken jaw, suffered against Christian Gonzalez, and isn't expected to fight again until around the end of the year. Um, on that Rodriguez-Gonzalez card, Murajan Akhmadaliev lost an upset split decision to Marlon Tapales, and MJ has now filed a formal protest of the result. And lastly, American and British boxing officials have formed a new organization called World Boxing, hoping to save Olympic boxing and represent the sport in place of the International Boxing Association, which has been suspended by the IOC. Uh, Kieran, what do you have to say about any of these items? Um, I don't have very much to say about most of them. Um, I mean, most of that, it's all it's all fine stuff. Franco right. Ayoka too is good. Maloney Nakatani is good. Balanga Quigley should be an opportunity for Balanga to start scoring knockouts again. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Murajan Akhmadaliev. Love, love, love him. But he gave away the first half of that fight against Apales, and that's what he should be focusing his attention on. Uh, there was nothing untoward about any of that scoring. Um, The item that does interest me is the formation of world boxing. Uh, We've touched before on the disaster that is the IBA or the AIBA as it was before that and the threat that its dysfunction and corruption poses um, to amateur boxing. And as you mentioned, it's already suspended from the Olympics, Um, the organization. There's a real danger that boxing will not be an Olympic sport uh, in the near future. But we've never done a really deep dive on all of that. And <clears throat> reasonably enough, that's not our focus. But, you know, amateur boxing is the pipeline of talent for professional boxing. There aren't very many very good or very successful pros who haven't had at least a decent amateur career beforehand. And well, not many amateurs get to the Olympics. The lure of doing so is a significant motivator. And, and without that lure, and make no mistake, boxing's place in the Olympics is a very risk here, then sure, there'll still always be amateur boxing. There'll always be a pipeline to the pros. But how many of the very best will turn pro earlier than they would have done or maybe go somewhere else or, or do something else before they're fully seasoned instead of waiting around and perfecting, uh, working on their craft as they would have done if they were an option to go to the Olympics? Boxing has tried so hard to shoot itself in the foot for so many years. Um, but this situation with the IBA is it's a just a real tricking time bomb for just the fundamentals of the sport. I have no idea how successful this world boxing alternative might or might not be or how credible it is or how desirable it is. But uh, if it is a way forward, a way to help amateur boxing out of this morass that, that threatens to do untold damage to the sport, then I'm all for it. All right. Uh, let's wrap up this episode with your next top five assignment. And you have a couple of weeks to think about this one, as uh, right. all things Davis Garcia will be keeping us occupied next week. So and uh, I began thinking about it in 13 days. <laughs> right. Come on. You don't want to take advantage of all that time to really think it through carefully. You just want to procrastinate we'll and, and jam it in at the last second. Yeah, okay. probably. All right. I'm a journalist. It's not my role. <laughs> Kieran gonna Kieran. Uh, Kieran all right. Kieran. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> all right. Um, in any case, uh, I will make the assignment now, but the countdown will wait until the episode dropping in two Mondays. Here goes. I'm spinning off two fights. Uh, Davis versus Garcia, which will be in the books by the time of your countdown. Mm-hmm. And another fight that is maybe possibly coming soon. Who the hell knows? Uh, Errol Spence versus Terrence Crawford. What do these mega fights have in common? They are battles of unbeatens. Fights in which, barring a draw, someone's O has got to go. Uh, your assignment, Mr. Mulvaney, is to count down the all-time top five most hyped 
Battles of Unbeatens. So maybe the fight turned out to be a classic, or maybe it turned out to be a dud, or somewhere in between. But going in, it was an absolute mega event, and both fighters had zeros in the loss column, like Davis Garcia, like Spence Crawford. And I know it sounds like, all time, that's a lot of fights to consider, but it used to be so much rarer for a fighter to get to that point in their career, still undefeated. I don't think there will be too many fights to consider from before about 1970 or so. Uh, so so there it is, the top five most hyped battles of unbeatens. What do you think? Wow, that's uh, that's great, actually. I um, uh, I already have two. <laughs> so much for waiting for 13 Right, days. exactly. You're getting, getting a head start. Okay. No, I love that. Uh, that that's great, actually. Um, hmm, yes, I'm very excited about that. Um, that will be that will be fun. I think there that might be possible that I can't think of any beyond those two, but it's also possible that we'll have a a nice long honorable mention list there as well. But yes, you're right. They're almost all going to be fairly recent, I think. Okay. And and I'll give you a sort of a tip on researching uh, as I was checking to make sure that there were indeed plenty to choose from. It's a hard one to figure out what terms do I search for, boxing, battle of unbeatens, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) If you type in, believe it or not, if you type in someone's O has got to go, it will lead you to an article listing a bunch of uh, fights that fit that description that'll that'll help you kind of on the right path. All right. Um, so, so there's that tip. And uh, and one thing before we uh, wrap up here, uh, while you were uh, reacting there, I thought to myself, you know what? I want to check if Jake LaMotta versus Marcel Serdan was in Chicago. It was not, but I was close. It was in Detroit, so another major city from that part of uh, that part of the country, roughly. Um, so uh, yeah, my, my my I feel good about my first guess. I really was on the right track. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And yeah, I when you came so close with that second answer there, I thought, oh boy, we are you're definitely, <laughs> definitely on the right track there. See, that's us. We just multitask during this uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah, multitasking, not my thing. I, 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 whatever you said while I was looking that up, I have no idea because I can't pay attention to you and Google something at the same time. I hope you didn't say anything too ridiculous. Uh, no, but I, I can't believe you. Uh, you took me up on that challenge. I mean, that definitely that that mm, that you mentioned there. I mean, that's that's just crazy. You're never going to live that one down. But anyway, <laughs> that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. But that's not all from us this week. Far from it. We will be appearing on a special Wednesday edition of Morning Combat with our pal Brian Campbell. So make sure you're subscribed to MK so you don't miss us there. And then we will be posting pods of our own live from Vegas from Thursday through a post-fight pod late Saturday night. Uh, Be sure in the interim to check out All Access, Davis versus Garcia, both episodes of which are now available on Showtime streaming, on demand, and digital platforms. And all of that leads up to the big event itself. Javante Tank Davis versus Ryan King Roy Garcia live on Showtime pay-per-view at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Until the next episode, which will be coming your way soon. Thanks, as always, for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.